When we were sunk, all I know is there was a lot of fire and explosions, and, and I was ordered topsides and, and overboard, and I was burned. When I came to, I was on a cruiser. My hands were off. After that, I had it easy. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 247 and our movie this week from 1946, The Best Years of Our Lives. And here to talk with me about it, the former co-host of the Movie Go Round podcast and the current part-time co-host of the Movie Duel podcast. It's Nicole. Nicole, how are you? I'm very well, Travis. How are you doing? I am doing quite well. So, all right. Um, you had a list of movies that uh, we kind of, you looked over and you finally settled on this yes. one. So my first question for you is what history, if any, do you have with this movie? Um, Zero. Prior to watching. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Zero. I mean, I heard about it probably a couple of decades ago mm -hmm. as it's one of those movies that was very big in its time, but has just sort of fallen out of the public consciousness for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I try to be conscientious as a, as a movie fan of, you know, the history of film mm -hmm. and just trying to make sure that I, I'm have a, a thorough background as I can, because it's, it's nice to have all that to draw on when you're looking at current movies. You can find all the references, you know, from everybody yep. who went to film school, unlike myself, and they all know about these movies and these fantastic mm -hmm. shots or these sound tricks or, you know, various things like that. And it's sort of nice to be able to put your finger on it, but sometimes also you discover these complete gems of films. Absolutely that you wouldn't sort of stumble across on streaming in most cases. And this was one of them. You know, I had come up with a list when you said it was had to be a film I hadn't seen yet. I came up with a list of like 37 that I <laughs> hadn't seen and thought that I should somehow. And then I cut it down to the most um, homeworky of them. Okay. <laughs> the, one, the ones that I don't tend to think of as, or at least most of them are ones that I don't tend to think of as ones that you pick up on a casual viewing. You know, I had Five Easy Pieces and Breathless and The French Connection and Alphaville, Raging Bull. You know, these are all classics that I haven't seen. And then sure. there were more fun you know, more recentish ones like Lady Vengeance and Eve's Bayou and Blood Quantum that in some cases I didn't have access to uh, Blood mm -hmm. Quantums, I think only on Shudder or something, which I do not have at this time. Mm, okay. Um, so I cut it down to 10 and my kids play D&D. &D, so <laughs> I borrowed a 10-sided <laughs> die and that's how the final decision got made for this week's movie so for the best year best years of our lives and i have to say you know this is one that is one of the gems it's it really, so much yeah. more beautifully written and less corny than i would have anticipated for a film of its time 
Yes. So you brought this one up. I had not seen this either. And like you, I want to be cognizant of, you know, film history. I didn't go to film school. I studied film on my own. I watch a lot, but I try because I'm sort of the same way. I want to know where film came from to get where it is, right? You need to know some of that. It helps to inform like, yes, you can watch modern day horror movies, but you should go back and see Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or, um, you know, those kinds of things to see where these tropes originated in. You can do the same thing with sci-fi and all this. And classic Hollywood is one of those things that is a bigger blind spot for me because it just, when I was younger, it was, those were old movies and I didn't want to watch them. And then they, they, they sort of get that out of sight, out of mind. You don't think about it. You know, I, I have over the course of this show in the last nearly four years, um, discovered things that I just never got around to watching, like uh, Sunset Boulevard in the apartment and uh, 12 Angry Men. I just watched know. Sunset Boulevard for the first time like two weeks ago, and it was Isn't, so delightful. It is amazing <laughs> how good, like, and you, you hear a movie as a classic. And um, I had this discussion a couple of weeks ago with my guest because uh, we watched Rear Window. Um, she hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. And one of the Perfect things that movie. she said was she has this thing where when somebody, when, when somebody tells her a movie is a classic, her immediate reaction to that is like, well, I'll wait to watch that. I'll watch that some other time. Cause there's sort of this idea of like not fo- following the hype, which I do right. get, but these things that are considered classics get that label for a reason, right? When you, the first time you hear about, Sunset Boulevard, and I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, and all that. But when you watch the movie, you're like, no, this is, I get why this is a classic. And The Best Years of Our Lives is one of those movies I had heard about. I hear the title, uh, but I knew very little about it. I knew it had, it was 1946, and it was set somewhere, it was set right after World War II. But that was about all I knew going into Mm -hmm. it. And I was blown away by how how much i enjoyed because i saw I'll, i will say this i saw 1946 and i'm like all right i'm probably going to enjoy it and then i saw two hours and 48 minutes and i thought oh boy what am i what am i strapping in for like this is going to be long and <laughs> and it didn't feel like that at all it paced really well no um and there yeah, were they do a lot of back and forth among the three primary characters so yeah, you don't spend too long getting bogged down in any one thing. Yep, it it moves along at a good pace. It's bouncing back and forth, like you said, and and it's a character study. And I I I didn't know what to expect from this. I really kind of went into it very blind, of like, well, we'll just sit down, see what happens with it. And it wasn't what I expected it to be. Um, and it was it was very. Uh, it was, in, it was an interesting story and it felt ahead of its time in terms of the, the kind of the story they were trying to tell um, mm. in, in some ways. Like it just felt like, and maybe this is just because I haven't seen enough movies, especially pre-code movies like this one. Um, or I guess this would have been, this wouldn't be pre-code. I think the Hayes Code was. It's pre-rating system. Pre-rating system. There we go. Yeah, because I did see actually IMDb has it as uh, approved was the rating mm-hmm. for it. Um, but it's uh, it, it, maybe it's just that I haven't seen enough other films from that era 
to to kind of get it but like every time i watch one of these older movies i'm blown away by some of the storytelling and i'm like wow they were tackling something like that at that point you know this has a lot of right the soldier coming home and ptsd stuff no, it wasn't called ptsd at that time but no like that dealing was, with you know, that. shell shock kinda. Mm-hmm. um but yeah i just i this was a great choice for a movie because it it really surprised me with not that it was good not that mm-hmm. because obviously again you don't get ratings and win awards the way this movie did without being good but just how much i I really appreciated the story being told and the characters that were portrayed throughout it, which we're going to definitely talk about because there's some amazing performances in this. Um, right. You get so used to thinking of World War II era movies as being, you know, rah-rah, go allies, try mm-hmm. to get people emotionally moved to support the American troops going over and support Britain in their fight and, you know, anti-Nazi, all of that. Um, and this was the first, you, you could almost call it an, an anti-war World War II movie in a sense, in the, yeah. not that, you know, it's very clear that they thought that the filmmakers felt that we had done the right thing by going and going over and supporting Britain and France in World War II and yep. that they were glad that we had persevered and we had won the war but it was it's like okay we've done that let's never do it again let's make right. it so that we never have to have a war like this ever again and mm-hmm. this is why because this is the human cost of it and and I do think that some of that so, starts and yet it's with... not preachy Right. Oh no, it's not preachy at all, which which is great. Like and William Wyler, the director, had been in World War II. In fact, he had been uh in B seventeen bombers. Yeah. Um and I also read that they yeah, had a, a lot, lot of folks of in crew. Hollywood at the time had gone. Yeah, and they, they recruited a lot of a lot of the crew for this from World War II vets as well, which I thought was really, really neat. Mm. Um but like the opening of the movie, the very first scene is our uh, one of our three leads, Fred, at the air travel counter. And he is like up on, during the war, um, you know, a lot of times soldiers were given a lot of special treatment. They were if they were home, you know, they were they were looked at like conquering heroes and, and kind of all this sort of stuff. This mm-hmm. was post-war. And the movie opens up with him where he's just like he's stuck. And he can't get a seat on a plane. And the lady's telling him, you know, it's going to be three days or something to get onto a plane. And then immediately just dismisses him for someone else. So he's he's right. already kind of being like pushed aside and forgotten. And that that, that was something I, I was like, okay, this is where we are to start the movie. That's like our first thing. And he's got to go to the, the ATC right. across the field. So that was an interesting right. start. Yeah, the ATC was... Oh goodness! I wrote down what that was because I had <laughs> forgotten, and now that, I don't have it. I don't know. It's uh, it's it something like armed, to do with armed forces transport, yeah, um, arrangements, and yeah, it was it was really something. You know, the you get. I grew up. I was born in the early seventies. I grew up in the seventies and eighties, 
and a lot of post-Vietnam films coming Mm -hmm. out in those years. And the impression that I got from those and from, you know, the history that I learned in school is that the soldiers coming home from Vietnam really got a raw deal and got treated horribly, unlike the soldiers who came home from World War II. Right. And while, yes, nobody who came home from World War II got spit on and called baby killers, um, they were still like, oh, yeah, you're back. Great. You know, let's go back to life as usual. We'll mm-hmm. pretend that never happened and just go on with life the way it was, you know, quote unquote, supposed to be. Right. And leaving all these men to deal with, you know, their no way to deal with their trauma because people just didn't want to talk about it, you know? And, I, you and know, there to were an a lot extent, of people from that generation that never talked about it. Yeah. And, and I mean, to an extent, we didn't understand the trauma nearly as well at that time. True. But part of that, that is, is because, Absolutely. yeah, part of it is because we didn't talk about it and it was pushed away, pushed aside. Mm-hmm. Even later on when Fred goes to the drugstore and he meets the new manager Right. And the guy's like, look, legally, because we're in a different business, we're not legally obligated to give you your job back. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, right. okay that's kind of harsh, but sure, I guess I get it. Um, right. But, and the old yeah, coworker was, who's resentful of all the servicemen, quote unquote, pushing people out oh, yeah. of their jobs. Yep. So, uh, but yeah, just the opening at the, at the airport where the, the rich man still gets preferential treatment mm-hmm. over this war hero. You know, we find out near the end of the movie just how heroic Fred right. Derry had been in the war. And but because he is a, a wealthy man who has a, you know, the silent black sky cap helping him with his bags. Mm-hmm. Um and putting them on the, the scale for him. And the woman is just like, oh, yes, we have your tickets. Will you move right this way, sir? We'll get you right on. You have 16 extra pounds of baggage. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> and oh, he's that's fine. fine. Just... How much will that be? Meanwhile, I go to the airport and I have five extra pounds. And I'm like, shit, that's another hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so about it. it's just like, it, it was just really, it sets the tone right away. And, you know, we don't yeah. find out till later that that's, that's been Fred's whole life before the war. And now he's right back to it. You know, there's, they make a point in this movie of having men from three different generations. You know, there's a man who's, I think he's supposed to be mid to early, mid to late twenties, you know, and that's Homer. And then so, Fred is like mid thirties. And then Al is mid forties. Yeah, and I think Homer is even meant to be younger because when he goes to the bar and he tries to order whiskey, Butch still Mm -hmm. tells him, no, you can have beer. And I know that there was a time where liquor was the only thing restricted uh, by age and that beer wasn't or beer was Uh, like a younger age. So I think he's supposed to be genuinely because it was his uncle. (laughs) <laughs> and he's just I mean, like, no, 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 no hard stuff for you. <laughs> that that could be. Um, that's certainly a, a pretty, could you know. Be, but he's supposed it, to have gone to school with Wilma. Yeah, that's true. And I don't think she's in school anymore. So, but you're right. You have three different yeah. generations all coming back from the war, mm-hmm. but also three different backgrounds. 
because yeah, three different social Homer, strata. Yeah, Homer was in the the um, suburbs, living with his parents, mm-hmm. nice little house there. Um, and then, and I was not prepared for because uh, they drop off Al at that nice high rise building and uh, mm-hmm. real nice apartments. And then Fred goes to just a kind of a dump looking house, like very, very rough looking poor area. Right. Literally uh, the wrong side of the tracks. Like his, yeah. his father lives in this really ramshackle walk up, like right across the street from the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. So, And yet Fred's the, you know, he's the captain. He's got the best right. rank. He's of the, the highest rank. Um, which was a great moment where he's like, Sergeant, get, put your, keep your hands in your pockets. You know, you've been outranked. Like I, I like, right. there was, there were so many great interactions between like the, the three of them, but so many of the characters, but like just, I mean, I mean, immediately too, you know, as soon as they get on the mm-hmm. plane, because we see Fred go to the ATC and it's just, I mean, talk about like just a rough room you would have to walk into. It's just nothing but soldiers and all they want to do is go home and they're just stuck. Mm-hmm. Like. We think air traffic, we think air travel is bad now. Imagine being those guys. (laughs) It's it's just mind boggling. They're sprawled all over the place. Clearly waiting a long time because some of them are passed out sleeping. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The best part of that is when the the guy calls for uh, the flight to whatever, you know, heading west and he names off like four cities and everybody starts getting up. He's like, yeah, that's been canceled until further notice. You're going to have to find something else. (laughs) It's like, oh, geez. (laughs) Come on. Right. Um, but like from the moment that, that Fred and Homer get onto the plane um, with Al, like there's just a, they, they form a bond right away. There's something about the three of them where it doesn't matter that they're all from different backgrounds, that they all, you know, the, the varying ages and all that. There's no friction between them. They're just like, they're just right. three guys They've going home to their stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've all and seen they're some just stuff. Happy. They all want to go home. Yeah. Al is the oldest and he's the wealthiest, but he's uh, like the middle rank. He's a non-commissioned officer. He's a sergeant. Um, yep. And then uh, Homer is just a, you know, like sailor, you know, like seaman mm-hmm. first class kind of below decks sailor. So like he doesn't even, he, he claims he's never... He hasn't seen the world. He hasn't seen all the places he's been because he's been, you know, yeah. working in the in the shop under the deck. So, yep, he's been below carrier, that's never been I on a plane. I think he refers before. to it as a flat top. So, yeah. yep. So yeah, he says this is his first time on an airplane. I mean, it's like how did how well how did he get to the <laughs> how did he how did he get to the foreign theaters? I mean, it's, uh, well, he must have gone gotten on the ship at in the U.S. Yep. and. <laughs> Probably left from San Diego Gone all the way and over there. went right yeah. out there. Um, now, right. Homer, played yeah. by Harold Russell, by the way. Harold Russell in this movie is so good. There is just this authenticity and vulnerability to him. This was his mm. first uh, acting role. This is the first thing yes. he did. Yeah, he was not um, a professional actor at the time. And I love the story that he was, uh, he was doing a training video, um, for soldiers rehabilitating from, uh, disabilities, from injuries and Mm. that he was seen in that. And that's what got him this role. I love that. Um, right. 
Yeah, he was in a documentary called Diary of a Sergeant uh, that they made about, you know, Harold Russell was injured in actually a stateside accident, a training accident. He was carrying explosives and a faulty fuse went off early um, and he lost both hands and uh, was given the two hooks for prosthetics. And while the hooks aren't pretty, you know, from what I understand, they're they're much more versatile than, say, you know, a silicone prosthetic hand would be. Mm -hmm. It's like that's that might be more comfortable looking for a lot of people, but it's they're not as useful. Right. So, you know, and he and really when, shows off how he how well he can use them throughout the film. Yeah. Well, when they first showed him pull his hands out of his pockets, and I saw uh -huh. those, I thought for like my, my initial reaction was it being a movie and not really knowing mm -hmm. uh, much about it. My initial reaction was like, okay, it's going to look awkward because he's going to have his arms are going to be extra long because he's got to hold these prosthetics. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize they were, I didn't know any of the background. And so then to notice, nope, his arms aren't uh, that long. And then to see like just Harold Russell's dexterity with those and the fact like how comfortable he was. And then the way he portrayed the character as being around his army buddies, around anybody in the military that had been in World War II, he was very comfortable with it. It didn't bother him because it didn't bother them. And it right. was his worry of going home that was the tough part because he just didn't, he didn't know how people were going to react and he didn't want to be pitied. And he was worried right. about that. It just, it was such a commanding performance and he was, it was worthy of the Academy Award he won. Uh, yeah, that was, two. that was something that was interesting. I mean, that is something, one of the few things that I did know about this movie going in was that Harold Russell had been cast and had genuinely lost both hands in the course of the war. Um, and it's interesting that the opening uh, clip that you picked because I thought that was honestly like the the worst <laughs> of his performance like those I think that time in the plane on their way home like they spend a couple of days going home because they have to mm -hmm. make a lot of stops apparently yep. and um the he has that moment where he explains how he lost his hands and it to my ear it sounds fake but maybe that's because i knew that that wasn't how he had actually been injured but it does mm -hmm. the delivery sounds a little stiff to me yeah. but he also has the most beautiful moment on that plane i think it's the the second day they're in the nose of the plane flying home so they're they're in the 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 bombardier's window so they have a tremendously great view of where they're going and it's about sunrise and Homer's the only one awake and he looks mm. up and he looks at the sun coming up over the tops of the clouds and you can see the tears coming to his eyes, these genuine yeah. tears coming to his eyes. And it's so incredibly moving. Just, you know, my fiance turned to me. He's like, my God, this guy's good. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it was just so affecting. Right there. I'm like, well, that's it, the Oscar moment right there. That's what got him the best supporting actor Oscar. You know, he won two Oscars for that one because 
he the academy thought that he wasn't a good bet for winning the actual right. acting award so they gave him a special award for you know inspiration to veterans yeah. uh <laughs> from all backgrounds something like that and he won that one and then later he he actually got the competitive award as well well yeah. deserved and, i think and that moment with him looking at that sunrise is one of many moments in this movie. It is a, it is not a dialogue. I wouldn't call this a, a dialogue heavy movie, but it's a, it's not an action film in any way. It's, it's still dialogue driven, but there was so many moments that were so well acted through just like body movements, facial expressions, reactions to what somebody was saying to them that uh, I mean, a lot of it was from Harold Russell, a lot from, um, uh, where is she? Tessa Wright as Peggy. Um, oh, Teresa even, Wright, yeah. Or Teresa, sorry. Teresa Wright, uh, and even Dana Andrews as Fred. Like, the the physical acting, he did a lot of acting with his posture, with the way he would carry himself. Yes. Um, that I liked mm -hmm. a lot. You'd see his, you know, when, when he would, when something would, be beating him down his shoulders would slump a little bit more and he would get he would kind of force himself upright um a lot and there was just there was a lot of really good acting in this um and we right yeah you know Fre frederick marsh won the other oscar for acting uh he won best uh lead actor mm -hmm. for his role as al um he was great i thought they all were so it was it was fantastic yeah. to see hollywood that. And, loves <laughs> Hollywood loves an alcoholic, I want to say. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they love alcoholic characters. And Al, uh, like, almost immediately starts coping with his feelings with alcohol. Yeah. Yep. Um, what it does, though, I think, in this that works so well, this whole movie, is these characters feel real because they're multidimensional. Yep. There isn't, there's no, like... Like, yes, Al does turn to alcohol, but it's there's a reason behind it. And it's not something he necessarily consciously like, I don't know, I got this feeling like he came home and he's just he's confused. He doesn't know what's going on at home now because he's been gone for three years and everything that he's gone through and how different his life as a sergeant was from being the banker. And now he's back home, but he's going to be a banker again. And he his kids are grown up. I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine having children like that being gone and just come home to these two young adults. I love that moment right. where he's seeing them and he's like, who are you two? Like, I don't even know. I don't right. even recognize you. What happened? Right. If and, he'd been gone, you know, for even three years, his oldest son is supposed to be like 17, you know? So yeah. there's a huge difference between 14 and 17. Oh yeah. In terms of appearance usually and in terms of uh temperament and composure and what you've learned and how you conduct yourself. There's just a huge difference. And to come home to that having happened, you know, in your own mind kind of overnight, because you have this picture in your head of mm -hmm. what your kid was like when you left. And it's gonna be completely different. So yeah, he's just sort of at a loss as to what to do. His wife says, why don't you sit down and rest? And he's like, I'm comfortable standing, you know, <laughs> yeah. not, not ready to just kick back and relax, you know, his first day home. 
Yeah, which I can I can get. Like it would it's gotta feel just strange to suddenly be in that situation after three years of whatever that it was that he had to go through. Um and then mm-hmm. to just come home and now he's got to do this. And like the next day he's getting a call from his bank, his manager at the bank, wanting him to come in to talk about working again, which he doesn't really want to do, but he also kind of knows he needs to. And right. he also wants to like, he wants to feel useful because he's been useful for the last few years. He wants to, he doesn't want to lose that feeling. So he gets back to it. And then the, you know, his arc, like his story is great because here he is dealing with like the whole thing of coming home and the family dynamic and, you know, stuff with his wife is good, but they have that moment later on where it's like their marriage is perfect, but they love each other and they keep loving each other. And here he is. And then he, he also has like him fighting for the little guy when he gets the VP job, um, for you know gi loans and stuff like that and the first one is a guy who wants a loan for a farm and has no collateral but he's like i'm gonna do this for you because you know you're a good you you seem like a good kid and immediately gets backlash on that but he pushes back on it right and like that whole scene at the at the dinner was great for that very reason because you could see because you could see millie go through a lot during just that speech Right. Yeah, his there, wife Millie Callie. played so well by Myrna Loy. Oh, um, so well. And yeah, she's going through the, you know, they have her seated on the opposite side of the head of the table and her husband's on the on the other side of the, you know, the president of the bank. And she's you can see go on all over her face that she wishes she was right next to her husband so she could, you know, restrain him <laughs> yeah. a little bit, pull him back. You can see she's keeping a tally on the tablecloth of how many drinks he's had. You know, he had two before he left the house and he's had five before his speech really gets going. Mm-hmm. And she's just like you know the look on her face is like oh god you know he's gonna blow it he's gonna say something absolutely off color or horrible or uh, insulting and he's going to blow it all and we're going to have to he's gonna have to find a new job you know it's like all going silently across her face Mm -hmm. as it goes and then as he speaks and talks about how you know, he see he understands that he needs to use sound banking principles to make his decisions and that giving these loans to GIs can be seen as a gambling with the depositors money, but he sees it as betting on the future of this country. And, you know, this is something that that we owe to our men coming back and they're we I think they're going to do well and I believe in them and we're betting on them. You know, and you can see by the end of the speech that his wife is so proud. She's so proud of him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she's she's going to back him up 100 percent of the way. Yeah. But I mean, they they losing his job like she doesn't care. Sorry. Right. Right. No, no, no. I was just thinking, you know, when he gets when the manager of the bank wants to hire him back it's clear he speaks he talks around it in this very sort of passive aggressive way but they want him to handle the small loans department because of the gi bill 
mm-hmm. is offering like these low cost loans to veterans if they get approved and the bank doesn't want to approve them. So they right. think it's even better if they can hire a veteran to be the one to deny them because then they look less bad having yeah. another veteran deny the loans. You know, they he, they see the GI Bill as a problem for the mm-hmm. bank that they have to deal with. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, you know, and that's it, another entirely... aspect of the country adapting after the war. Yeah. And for all we know, Al was that type of banker that a little more ruthless or not even ruthless, but just like a little mm-hmm. more that type of banker prior to the war. And we're just looking at the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's, you know, he's less analytical looking at the numbers and more looking at the person. And uh, especially when it comes to these, these GIs and just what has gone through. I mean, his, his line after his phone call uh, when he's eating his breakfast and then he's sitting there and he gets, he gets Millie to come over and sit with him for a second. And she kind of asks him like, well, what's wrong? And he's still, I mean, there's only a second day back or whatever, but he's just like, I just keep thinking about the other guys. I just keep thinking about the ones that aren't as lucky as I am to be home and to have, you know, this wonderful wife and all of this. Like, I feel like he went through a big change because that was a lot of what this movie had was these changes. You know, Fred was like Fred pre and post-war didn't have much. You know, he was a soda jerk before he got into the military and now he's back and he has no real skills. Nobody's hiring him for anything. He's just back to being mm-hmm. a soda jerk. But in the war, he was a captain and he was, mm-hmm. you know, he was looked at that way and he was a war hero and he doesn't want, he doesn't want to go back to what he had. Like he wants to be able right. to move on, but he's kind of not really able to. And then you've got Al who changed and I, I feel like grew to be more understanding of other people yes. with his time in the war. So I, I just really, I liked, I liked all of that. And then, and the, the family done, the family interactions with everybody was great because there wasn't, there wasn't ever any like forced um, anger or friction. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of understanding. I mean, Fred and his dad, uh, the couple of scenes we get with his dad are, are very kind and very gentle. Uh, his yes. his father seems like a really nice guy. So, right, who is just so happy that his son made it home. Yeah, you know, oh, and you can you can see that he just wants to spend time with his kid and and really absorb the reality that he's back and he's okay. Yep, and you got I mean uh, Homer's time when he gets to his house and his parents just don't they don't know what to do. Right. Because they're they are right. in a situation where their son comes home. He's still young, but now he has, you know, he lost his hands in the war. And mm. that that scene with uh, Homer and Butch, which Butch, by the way, played by Hoagie Carmichael, which was great. That was the one the name that so I recognized going into this was Hoagie Carmichael. And man, Butch was a great character. Oh, um, yeah. He's so laid back, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh but that scene, that first scene with the two of them where um, Homer sits down and he's just, he's kind of, uh, he's saying like, you know, I, I don't want the pity of anybody. Uh, you know, I don't, like everybody's either looking at my hooks or they're doing everything they can to not look at them. And it's like, 
mm-hmm. which is just like, yeah, no matter what they do, it's wrong, right? Like, don't worry, it'll get better. It's just right now, you they have to adjust to you. You have to adjust back to them. And then his dad, you know, Homer's dad in the next scene we see him in while he's out mowing the lawn is like, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do and I want to help, but mm-hmm. I don't know how. Uh, and you just right. feel for him. You just feel terrible for him. Yeah, it's um, an adjustment for everybody. But I mean, that's another example of the the beautiful writing mm-hmm. that this film has. It did win an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, and you can see why, you know, that line where Butch is talking to Homer, he says, give them time, they'll catch on, you know, your folks will get used to you and you'll get used to them, that everything will yep. settle down nicely unless we have another war then none of us have to worry because we'll all be blown to bits the first day. Yeah. And I was just like, wow. Well, <laughs> just it's such sitting a, in my living room going, whoa, <laughs> not expecting that. But it's such, it's such an insightful line and it's also perfect. It's perfectly what Homer needs to hear there. Right. Mm. Butch, Butch is like, he knows people. It's got to be from just yes. running a club like that and being around running people a bar, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you, you know, the magical bartender, right? You learn people, but it's like <laughs> he, he knows exactly what what Homer needs to hear there, and and also to break it up with just that little bit of gallows humor, that little bit of levity at the end of it, of like, right. look, it'll get better, and if it doesn't, eh, we'll all be dead anyway. So who cares, you know? And that's that's something nice. that's going to connect with the sailor or the soldier in a way that yes. it might not connect with anybody else. So I, I, you're right. The writing in this was amazing. Robert E. Sherwood wrote the screenplay and won the Oscar and deservedly so. I mean, it was fantastic writing all the way through because all the characters, again, are very uh, interesting and they have layers to them. And whether it's Fred, whether it's Peggy and sort of being this like young kind of early 20s, early to mid 20s um, girl still living at home, very open relationship with her parents, which I was very cool to see. Like, I just liked that. Yes. Um, But just. Yeah. And her her dad, Al, is like, does she know everything that she needs to know? Did you have the talk <laughs> with her, with his wife? And his wife said, she's been working in a hospital. She knows more than you or I ever will. She's fine. You know. It's great. And like, she's what she's wise behind beyond her years, but yet still, um, still young and still, yes, still has a lot to learn, uh, which I, I, and you know, Teresa Wright just nailed that character. She, she really brought like a, the perfect balance of kind of, there's a little bit of innocence in there, but then world weariness and sort of this idea of like, I want to change things. Because she, I mean, when she has the night out with uh, Fred and his wife, Marie, and her immediate reaction is like, they don't love each other. I need to break up this marriage. I'm in mm. love with him. Uh, yeah. But by, you know, she also kind of understands like that's probably not going to work. But that's just her. So that's that, that young impulsiveness. That's just her gut. Yeah. And uh, by the way, that scene in that club where they're dancing. Yes. I I started like getting flop sweat from watching that scene because it was just a sardine can of a dance floor. Like 
Yeah, I have never seen that before. But I mean, if you want to really talk about rubbing elbows with someone, that was literally it. You know, it was this sort of packed dance floor where you could lift your feet up and you'd still be swept along. Yeah, that was crazy. Fine. There were there were a few, and I'll I'll mention some more later. But there were a few things that I just that tickled me about this movie from a time capsule perspective. Um, Mm. that uh that i'll bring up but um but no these just these characters like all of them like peggy is great um i love seeing the the evolution of you know what homer goes through in it and this idea that he he pushes against being pitied but then Mm. he's worried that like like he's worried that wilma is only with him gonna gonna want to stay with him out of some sort of sense of loyalty almost and right. she she doesn't care about that at all but but he he like he needs to figure it out on his own and he's you know he's processing his trauma and everything that happened to him and meanwhile she's over there like just let me love you and it's like homer right. let her love you come on man yeah like she's Kathy O'Donnell does a really good job of broadcasting how much she loves homer mm-hmm. with it, it's a little it's a little heavy but not so much that it's cloying or over dramatic it's just she she just looks enraptured to hug him again when mm-hmm. he first gets home and he's just doesn't doesn't know what to do with himself he just stands there and lets yeah. her hug him and like she he kisses her back but not not with any sort of passion or anything it's just you know a basic response and you can tell this he's got some he's got some stuff to work out here mm-hmm. about how he's going to deal with Wilma and the and fact that she still loves him you know and he thinks yeah, yeah. she doesn't he seems to think like she doesn't really understand how hard life with him is going to be and what she's going to have to deal with. And she's just like, she doesn't understand why he's pushing her away. It's like, I want to be a support for you. I want to be here for you and you're not letting Mm -hmm. me and I don't get it. Which can be tough. Like it's tough because in the end, Homer does have to get to that point himself. He, he has to figure that out. All she can do, all she can do is just continue to put that out there for as long as uh, he is willing to listen and, and he eventually Mm -hmm. does, but you're right. Like she does borderline on that kind of almost too much, almost like almost unbelievable in her devotion and her love for him. But then you also think about the fact that she's probably, let's say she's 20 at the oldest. Right. Mm. Let's say they're both in their their early twenties. He might maybe is a year older than her or something. She fell in love with him at such a young age and then had him gone for so long that I sort of get it. Like right. it's there's there's a bit of a believability there of that young love and like you you can't imagine being with anybody else for the rest of your life at that age because you're so right. in love with I that mean, person. She's, yeah, she's literally the girl next door. She lives in the house next <laughs> yeah. door to them. <laughs> yep. Um, and they went to school together and they were high school sweethearts and, you know, they've Mm -hmm. probably loved each other since they were like eight, you know? Right. And it's just one of those things where they imprinted on each other very young and she's devoted to him and he went away. And 
while he's been away, she's probably been building all these scenarios in her head of what life is going to be like when Homer gets back. They're going to get married and they're going to get their own little house and they're going to live happily ever after and have a dozen kids and it'll be great. And, you know, she's still ready to do that. And he's, he doesn't think that she's ready for the reality of it. Yeah. And, but he's also got to get through that. I, I think that a certain amount of insecurity is unavoidable when you come mm -hmm. home with an injury like that. It's like, you know, your body is not the same anymore. And it's very hard to just assume that everybody's going to feel the same way about you. You know, yeah. it's, it's very easy to believe that people are looking at your injury first and you second and you know, do they still see you as a whole person? Do they still mm -hmm. think of you the same way? Are they treating you nicely because they still genuinely like you? Or is it out of pity? Or is it out of what? And, you know, it it takes a while to get the grasp of what people might actually be feeling and thinking and what they intend. And, you know, that's got to be just experience and time that teaches yeah. you that and especially for for a character like homer who's you know not only is he coming home from the war with an injury but it's a very noticeable injury mm. to something that you know it's not like having a a limp even or right. some or or just like fred's trauma is all internal it's all mental it's all emotional um, mm. which is a lot harder to deal with in a lot of ways because it doesn't manifest. I mean, there's the scene where Marie's like telling him to snap out of it and all this. And right. when he Can comes you just home get broke, over it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, no, sure. I'll just, sure. I'll, just I'll get over that. these. Yeah. Um, I'll get over the fact that everyone in my plane died except for me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but, and it's, and it's tough for him to talk about. Whereas uh, Homer's is, is a parent right there. I mean, even just shaking hands with somebody. Um, right. He can't do it. And so then for the two of them to to bond the way that they did. And what I liked was. So when the whole thing with with Fred and Peggy happens, right, where she runs into him, she she comes to the drugstore and sees him. And he's not happy. He's working at the drugstore. Things with the wife aren't aren't going well. Um, so before they go out dancing and. Yeah. Uh, and then he he takes her to lunch Um which, by the way, he got both of their lunches for like a dollar seventy nine total. I think is what <laughs> I what looked it was. that up. I have a compulsion when I watch old movies. I gotta go I to too. like the inflation calculator mm -hmm. <laughs> and yep. go see. And I mean, it is it's still a relatively cheap meal. It's like twenty five bucks for the two of them for lunch, which isn't bad. Um, uh, when Al got not his bad job, for Italian food. No, <laughs> when, when Al got offered the job. Uh, I did the same thing. They said a twelve thousand dollar a year salary. I went immediately looked that up. It's like two hundred and two thousand uh, dollars. Yeah, was what he was getting paid. Like I'll take that. Uh, Sounds bad. And job. I mean, it, um, again, a big contrast with Fred. You know, Fred mm -hmm. gets essentially told he'll have to go back to his old job at this crummy rate of pay, and Al is literally offered a raise and a better position yeah. to come mm -hmm. back. Which you know, I, again, it's got to be a little bit conflicting for al even just to be like well what i okay i mean he's not gonna yeah, turn do it i down. deserve this kind but of yeah thing. exactly um 
but yeah, there's just like, there's that moment. And then, you know, Fred and Peggy, uh, when he walks her out to her car and then he kisses her, which, which yeah. immediately went to the, well, that shouldn't have happened, but it did. I'm going to go now. Um, right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Peggy having the relationship she has with her parents, she tells them about it like later that night right. to the point where Al, Al and Fred sit down and that scene at Butch's between the two of them, mm. what starts with, with uh, Fred coming in, going and sitting down with Al all the way through to when Fred leaves after the piano part with um, Homer mm -hmm. and Butch, that whole thing is just brilliant start to finish. Yeah. The acting and all of it, the framing of everything, the blocking of the scenes. I loved mm -hmm. the deep depth of field they would put in a lot of these shots in this. Yeah. And I did see that um, – the cinematographer for this, the director of photography, had worked on um, uh, uh, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, that's the one. Yeah, I, I don't know it's why. Greg Toland. Yeah, and so, like, it shows in these shots. You don't think about them the first time you're watching it. You're not really mm. like it. Just it just isn't top of mind. And until towards the end of the movie, when I realized there's so many times between um, Weiler and Toland that they would frame something so that they were using the entirety of their frame to tell a story and to tell two different stories right. at the same time. Yeah. There's something so going good. on in the foreground and there's something going on in the background. And, and oftentimes whatever is going on in the background is more interesting and more to draw your eye than the thing going on in the foreground, which is much bigger and taking up so much more of the frame. And it was just, mm. I just loved all of it. It was so good all the way through. Um, but that, that particular scene, uh, in Butch's bar, that last one there was really one that just grabbed me right away because they, they kept right. on that. They kept on that two shot of Fred and Al just facing off across the table mm. and the tension there was like palpable. You could feel it between the two of them. Right. And, and I just, I, I it just astonished me and then of course you start layering on then butch shows up and then he starts playing piano and um or not butch uh homer shows up with and starts playing piano with butch and i loved right. the i loved al's reaction to that i thought the piano lessons thing was just a ruse which is yeah <laughs> honestly what i thought at first when he said that i thought oh he's saying yeah that, you think he's it's just a going, joke yeah he's taking piano lessons and just drinking beer but no it was it was a real and that was great it was so good um so yeah, then to have yeah, I love that scene between Al and Al and Fred where they're he's confronting him. You know, he's basically doing number one the protective papa thing yep. of what are your intentions toward my daughter? And I don't like this because you're a married man, and I'm going to try to convince her to go. You know, have a relationship with somebody who is single and will make her happy. Um, and and there's this threat that you ex don't expect out of anywhere but i think in a way it's it's respectful of fred for him to tell him you know one military guy to another so mm -hmm. you know fred was like well so what's next do we go out into the alley and have it out and al says you know i learned a lot of dirty tricks in the army i'd hate to kill you by accident basically yeah <laughs> and fred's like okay <laughs> i guess that's it then 
<laughs> I'll go break no. up with your daughter. I'll go call her right now. And he makes that <laughs> phone call in the background in Butch's bar while you're, we're watching Butch and Homer play the piano in the foreground. Mm -hmm. And it's just amazing. You know, you don't know, you don't know where to look. <laughs> yeah. The whole time. Cause you're obviously you're showier to watch Hoagie Carmichael and the guy with hooks playing a duet on the piano, but mm -hmm. Fred's doing the more emotionally important thing in the background. And then you've got so, Al who's in the foreground the of the frame. Yeah. I mean, Al's right mm -hmm. there in the foreground of the frame, but his attention is on Fred in the background. So it's just like the whole time. And, and it's all one shot too, which is, you know, that's old school filmmaking. I mean, that's how you did it. But right. having it as a single shot there, number one, uh, you get to just show off that they're actually playing that piano. There's no fake in that. Like it's, it's happening right there in mm -hmm. front of you. But also it just keeps your attention because you keep looking from from one side of the frame to the other and you're looking at Al and you're looking at uh, Fred and you, you come back over and you see Homer and you just keep it like it, it draws your attention all over the place. It's just so interesting to watch. Um, and they did the very similar shot right at the end, the, like one of the last shots at the wedding, because after mm. after that whole scene was when Homer goes and sees Fred back at the um uh, the lunch counter in the drugstore. Right. Which, first of all, that's something I miss. I'll be honest. I miss <laughs> those old school like lunch counters. I, we had a, a Woolworths in town here yeah. when I was growing up that had that exact style of lunch counter. So like I've got fond memories of that from my very, very young childhood. And I just miss like that ambiance of going in to a, to a place like that and you had that. But I love that he goes in there and that's when we get the whole confrontation with the guy talking about the reds and whatnot and sort of the yeah and how the, we we fought for the wrong people in the war and, and like, how he's I mean, the way he's talking and the way he's tapping his paper saying just mm -hmm. read the facts my friend and all i'm watching this and i'm like it's just like hearing someone you know like tapping their their phone screen of their conspiracy website and being, we got to make America great again. Yeah. You know? Or <laughs> you do your own research. What, do your own. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Just read the facts. It sounds exactly like do your own research and you'll see how we got suckered into fighting for the wrong people and being on the wrong side that the, the reds didn't want to, they only wanted to fight the, the quote, the limeys, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would have done it and we would have, you know, and everything would have been fine. They had nothing against us, you know? <laughs> and, yes. and it leads to oh. another just gorgeous shot, which is right after. So the confrontation happens, Fred jumps the counter. Um, yep. And uh, which by the way, Homer um, desperately wants to take a swing at him. He really, and does. he's so frustrated, you know, he's just um, like, Oh, if I had my hands, you know, and it's the one yeah. time you really see him, see him one of the few times, but like the one time in public where he says, you know, I really wish I had my hands right now, mm -hmm. you know, if only I had, and the guy he's grabbed by the lapels is kind of freaking out because he's got these metal hooks being waved in his face. Right. You know? And it's so Fred's like, uh, you know, there's two, two different ways he's trying to, 
not defuse the situation, but handle the situation before it gets completely tragic in some way. Yep. You know, it's like he wants to defend his friend and make, you know, take care of this stranger who's so convinced that we got hoodwinked. Um, and so he decks him. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, he decks him into a glass counter. <laughs> Which just shatters upon so, impact. That I feel was, bad for the stunt great. guy. Oh, I know. Yeah, I wonder if something happened to the the stunt performer because you don't see him face face on anymore. No. He's facing the other direction as they walk him off into the background. Yep. That I'm looked like, like a rough one. I wonder if he was a mess after they did that. And I don't know if they I, had candy glass back in the 40s. Uh, he, uh, they had to have had something, but yeah, no it was whatever it was was it was a rough looking bump that he took because because he hit that and like the case itself shattered but the base of it didn't so he also hit that pretty mm -hmm. hard before rolling off of it but uh right. i have to give a yeah. shout out to dana andrews and his athleticism uh because there's two different oh, moments yeah. in this movie where he shows <laughs> off like that guy was in some shape because he hops that counter which look if you've never tried to hop a counter before to do it as effortlessly as he did is impressive because he just <laughs> bounds over that thing. Um, I did like the little bit of a speed up on his punch when he decks the guy. They they undercrank just a touch mm -hmm. to speed the film up so it looked even like rougher. Um, yeah. But then later on when he's in the airfield, when he grabs on and gets into the B-17, that was the other one where I was oh, like, Oh, yeah, he just sort was... of levers himself upward into the <laughs> yeah. hatch. Like that's some gymnastic no stuff going on right no there. No ladder. Nope. <laughs> yeah. He just like he just chin, hopped chin up in there. himself into it. <laughs> yeah. Um. But no, like after that scene, that again, after he punches that guy, there's a beautiful single shot of in the foreground. All we have is the hook, and we have Fred's hand, mm. and that's taking up like a third of the frame. And then the background is the bedlam that's going on, and all the people watching it, and the store manager coming out, and all of this. And just the way everything is framed and that long focus again, that, that real deep depth of field was, was compelling because there's just that little moment where Fred, Fred kind of grabs Homer's hook and sort of holds him back mm -hmm. a little bit. Like, like I'll take care of this. Don't worry. And then he just goes over, you know, yeah, I know the customer's always right and I'm fired. Here you go. And I'm leaving. And he just right. takes off. Um, and immediately kind of, is is there for homer of like you know look this is rough what you're going through is rough you need to go you need to find wilma you need to tell her what how you feel about her marry that girl right now like don't mm -hmm. let yourself get to a point where you lose that hold on to that thing and that mm -hmm. was a it was a very emotional moment um there was yeah. a lot of those in this there was a lot of emotional moments in this movie <laughs> sure um for sure. But, I mean, the whole, yeah, the whole Fred, thing, you know, his situation, mm -hmm. he got married like less than three weeks before he left for the war. So he was, he said he was married like 20 days yeah, for the war. So his, and he met and married Marie during his training period and, you know, brought her to live with his parents and then went off overseas. And <laughs> it's just, so they they don't even really know each other you know no. they didn't get past the 
the honeymoon stage of dating uh, to right. where you have your any disagreements or friction and have to figure out if you're going to bother to work through it or if you don't care enough about each other to keep going with it and just be like, oh, you know, let's it's been three months and things aren't kind of working. Let's cut our losses and go. Or if you're like, I think we have something special here. Let's figure out a method of dealing with whatever this conflict is. We'll get a, we'll figure out a compromise or, you know, I'll, I'll take lead on this issue and you take lead on the next issue or whatever, whatever method you figure out of working it out. Mm -hmm. And they never got to that stage. And it's not until they get back and he makes the, you know, what at the time was considered the standard expectation of, okay, you're my wife. I'm the husband. I'm going to go back to work and earn the money and yep. you're going to stay home. And she'd been making, she said, $500 a month in a nightclub, which is almost $7,000 now, uh, like 83000 a year, basically, I mean, yeah. she's making in that nightclub. And that's probably outside of tips. Uh, who knows? Right. You know, if that's just her tipped income or not. And she's, you can tell she loves working in the club. You know, all her friends are there. She's made a ton mm -hmm. of friends there that she wants to hang out with all the time. She loves the club life. She loves going out to eat every night and dressing up nicely and looking beautiful and, you know, having a good time. She's, <laughs> I don't know why it's like an old Matt Groening cartoon. I just thought of her as good time Charlena, you know, she's a <laughs> She's good time Charlena kind of gal is uh, Marie played yeah. very well by Virginia Mayo Oh, as beautiful. the kind of girl that you're like fun to hang out with, but you wouldn't want to live with her. <laughs> no. And, and the thing with her is like, she could be looked at as the least likable character in the movie and she, she has her flaws. They all do, but you have to think of it mm. from her perspective too, is like she gets swept up and marries a soldier and then he's gone yep. for three years. So now she's been basically independent for three years. She's taken a job. She's living on her own. She's doing fine. And he comes back and she sort of almost viewed him like a trophy. I mean, if you think about when he comes yes. home in the suit and she sees him in, the, in his civilian clothes for the first time, and she immediately wants him to wear his uniform mm. when they go out that night. They're going to go out to dinner and, and wear your uniform. Right. And he's so... Yeah. Like Fred, Fred wants so much to make her happy and to make it work with her that he's like, let's do it. I got mm -hmm. money. Who cares? Let's go. And that's why they end up broke because he just, he doesn't think ahead enough. And he's just like, no, I want to live in this moment now and make her happy. I don't right. want to just take any old job, you know, go back to my old, like all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the, the fact that they had to, as, as Al put it, well, at least you and your wife can get acquainted now. <laughs> when they're coming home on the yes. plane. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's another beautiful moment without dialogue is after when Marie convinces him to put his uniform back on so she can show him off to her friends mm -hmm. to show off her yep. soldier husband to her friends. And he puts it on and comes out and she's like, oh, now you look wonderful. You look like yourself. And this expression crosses his face. Oh, I know. Oof. It's just of dismay mm -hmm. so, you know you can see him thinking do i is is this me is this all i am 
do I never get to be anything except a soldier anymore? Yeah. Is this so. even going to work? <laughs> do I even like Marie? <laughs> <laughs> so just a whole yep. lot of things crossing his face. Yeah. And, and so like, like oh. so much said without a single word out of him. So, so much right. that, and, and this movie did that in so many different places with all of them, all of the characters, whether it was Millie or Al or Peggy or Fred, all of them had some moment where they said so much in either reaction to somebody or a situation without a single word being spoken by them. Mm. That was uh, Homer, the same thing. It was just very, very impressive the way the acting was done in this. Um, and I keep coming back to that, but like, I just am blown away by it. And, you know, again, I knew this movie was, was probably going to be good and I'd like it, but it's one of those where I'm always surprised by how much, I like something because it is a time capsule, right? This is 1946. So we're talking yes. 80 years ago now, almost, almost nearly 80 oh, years God. ago that this, that this <laughs> happened, that this was going on. And so there's just, there's so many differences in storytelling in filmmaking and in just general life that are so different from then that I always am not a hundred percent sure if I'm going to connect with a, an older movie the way that I do. And then mm. I'm just able to kind of like having ne having never experienced that world of the 1940s to just sort of disassociate from like the world today and say, well, what is this movie trying to say? What is, what is the story going on here? And I think part mm. of that is like, I, I, I enjoy period pieces a lot. I like movies that get set in a specific time. So this to me, I can view it as a period piece and right. And that helps. Um, but yeah, I just love, and there's little fun, little things. Like I loved uh, Peggy's glass frying pan. She had when she was making the eggs. I don't know why oh, that, I don't know why <laughs> that, that like stuck out to me, but I see her moving mm -hmm. the eggs around. I'm like, I can see through that pan. That's weird. <laughs> but it was a, it was like a glass dish with a handle on it. All right. Uh, for whatever reason that, that got me. Um, right. There's one other shot I want to mention real quick uh, because mm. it, it stood out to me a lot. Um, there was a lot of those depth of field shots, but there is a shot in the powder room when uh, Marie and uh, Peggy get up from the table, they head out yeah. and they sit in the powder room and it's like a three-sided mirror um, and right. the camera moves around it. And it like from a technical aspect, it's phenomenal because you never see the camera. The camera is invisible the whole time. I'm not right. entirely sure exact. I'd, I'd love to have seen how they did that to know how it was all staged out because if, I yeah. mean, if you've ever shot you anything so with careful. mirrors. Yeah. But the evolution of that one, because with the first pan, I thought, okay, now we're seeing like, but no, it was still another mirror. That was like an extra pan in there that then showed Peggy from another angle. It was just, it was really compelling to watch that whole scene and how it unfolded in the dialogue that was going on. Meanwhile, like sometimes very um, technically proficient shots like that can, can distract from the story going on at the same time. Um, yeah. If it calls attention to itself too much and you're just spending mm -hmm. the whole time going, how did they do that? You know, like in the, in the taxi cab when they're first, after they've landed, Oh yeah. First landed back in the city and they're, heading to the first house and you see the three men in the rearview mirror of the taxi cab 
Yep. And it's very clearly just like a, I'm not sure how they did it. I spent the whole time wondering how they did it because it's very sharp. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very sharp image in the rearview mirror, but you know that they didn't have a camera in the back seat of the taxi, you know, shooting right. that and the scene out the front or the side of the cab at the same time that it's mm -hmm. some sort of process, you know, process shot or inset or mat or something. Somehow they did that. Yeah. They shot that yeah, on a different kind of... day and stuck that in somehow. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that called attention to itself. <laughs> It did. And so I was kind of distracted of what was going on in the car at the time. Um, yeah. But I mean, fortunately, um, they made a good choice of doing it then because it was just, it was mainly a nostalgic montage sort of thing. Yeah. Like, we're back in the hometown. Look, there's the hot dog stand. There's the movie house. There's the, you know, hi, Bedford Falls, you know, kind of <laughs> sort of. Yeah, exactly. Thing. You know, and just letting the Americana soak back in. <laughs> yep, As seeing the baseball home. field, all that that's, good stuff. Right. That's the place to put in the weird trick shot where you're wondering what's going on because it's not distracting from the character building. Mm -hmm. So, and then and, to, But that to, shot in the ladies' room is really nicely done. It's so nicely yeah. done. And, and it's, Marie's and, being awful. <laughs> Teresa she really just, you could just see on her face how much Teresa is horrified by this woman mm -hmm. talking about yeah. how happy marriages don't work on thirty two fifty a week. You know. Yeah, you've got I, you've got Peggy who's who's thinking to herself like I'd be perfectly happy with Fred. Fred is great, and right. here's Marie like, you know, you need money, and because that's what yeah. she that's that is what is important to her, and that's what she wants is to, mm -hmm. like you said, she wants to go out every night and have dinner and see her friends and go dancing and all that kind of stuff. I get that. Um, but it's just, it's such a polar opposite between the two of them. And for Peggy to just sit there and be like, well, I'm sure he'll try to find a better job. Like she doesn't freak out on her, but you can tell internally she just wants to scream. It's such, yeah. And then to go home and tell her parents about that and tell her parents, like, I want to break up their marriage. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> right. It's a, it's a gutsy thing to say. Just like, oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how's how's okay. that going to work? <laughs> and she's like, you know, you 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 two don't understand. You know, this is where it betrays her age. Where mm -hmm. she's like, you two don't understand the pain of thwarted love, kind of thing. You've <laughs> always had a perfect marriage and gotten along beautifully from day one. And her parents kind of chuckle and look at each other. And he's, he's, she's like, how many times have I told you that I hated you and meant it? <laughs> he goes, and how many times have I told you I was, I was sick of you and didn't want to see your face again. And they've had to fall in love over and over again. They've had to fall in love with each other many times over the years. And, and when you think it's a beautifully like mature thing. It to, is to say about a relationship because that's that is how long term relationships work. Sometimes some you got to work at it. Sometimes you drive each other nuts, mm -hmm. and you have to figure out a way to get through that. You know. Yeah, and it's it's that combination of you have to have a little bit of what Wilma is giving to to um, Homer right in that whole like. Mm. A long-term relationship needs a little bit of that kind of devotion and like, look, I'm, I, I love you and I'm going to stick around and I don't care what goes on, but it also needs a little bit of that. 
that same type of deal that Millie and Al have, which is like falling in love with each other all over again, because there are times where just on, on a long enough timeline, everyone's going to drive you crazy. Like you mm-hmm. just can't really get around that. And it's, it's being mature, I think is the perfect word for it. It's, it's being able to be mature enough to be like, we can have the spat, we can have the disagreement, but still come out the other side or figure out that it's not going to work and move on right? because we're always constantly changing and evolving. So the, the, the relationships, the way they were written in this, I think was the thing that surprised me the most because it didn't feel like something that was being, being done in Hollywood films in the forties is it's not like Mm -hmm. the, the idea I have in my head of what movies were like back then, but clearly they were because you watch something like this, you watch sunset Boulevard, you see, that the world was like it wasn't a completely alien environment back then for as long ago as it was and how different the world in general can be yet there's still a lot of similarities so right i like that but i, I mean like this isn't that. like you know, casablanca and the sort of sweeping romantic feeling right um that you think will get you through any that will persist through any adversity. You know, this is relationship that you have to work at. And it's clear mm-hmm. that Millie and Al have very similar senses of humor. And this is what's gotten them through the tough patches in their marriage. Yep. And it's, it's how they, they last figured for out a way to laugh and keep moving. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, that so was great. And, t- and luckily their daughters picked that up a little bit. You know, the first night that they're all out drinking and they meet Fred and Fred's like, you don't seem like Al's daughter. (laughs) She goes, you know, actually, he's my son from a previous marriage. (laughs) And I was just like, I didn't think that was the kind of joke they made in the 40s. That it felt very contemporary. It felt very modern. It did. It did. You would make Uh, that. I do that whole scene in the beginning where Al says, let's go out on the town. And it's Al and Millie and Peggy. Millie and Peggy are just amazing in that whole sequence where they're just like, okay, we got to deal with these drunk guys again. All right, fine. We can, we can do this. Like, (laughs) you know, Millie wants him to, wants him to go home and he's like, ah, one more drink, come on in. And, And she goes along with it. But then she sees like there's there's that moment where they start dancing and it's like there's a little bit of that uh that's them falling in love again that's that moment yeah it's it's that in a microcosm of like it's been a rough night and she wasn't prepared for him to come home when he did like right. she just wasn't ready and then the flood of emotions of him being home yeah yeah the flood of emotions of him being home that was another scene when he walks into the house into the apartment mm and he sees the son, then he sees his daughter, and she's in the other room calling out, like, Peggy, who is it? And there's the pause there. There again right. was some of that amazing acting without words where you, see, you, you catch the realization wash over her. Mm-hmm. And then that long focus shot, and again, something in the background is what we're paying attention to, which is them coming together at the end of the hallway. And it's small in the frame with the kids sitting there watching their parents and it's just like, I, I love, I love that. And then late, you know, later that night, now she's got to deal with him being just drunk and they drop off mm-hmm. Fred at the apartment building and he can't get inside. I love that. Well, let's hold on. 
let's wait a minute and make sure he gets inside. Right. Yeah. And next thing you know, they're carrying him back to the car and throwing him in the back seat <laughs> with Al. Yep. And just all of that, just the kind, the kindness too of, of Peggy and Millie to take care of Fred and Al, you know, Al mm-hmm. makes sense, right? It's her husband and, and the father, but Fred for somebody they don't know at all to right. be kind enough to him. make sure. Yeah. But he was somebody that Al knew even briefly. Yep. And there was the bond that they had as soldiers. And, uh, and so that extended to that, that shows just the, the kindness of Millie and Peggy to take care of him and get him home and, you know, make sure he sleeps it off for the night. Right. And they put him in, in Peggy's canopy bed with her satin <laughs> comforter. Love that. <laughs> Over him. Yeah. And Peggy's like, I'll be fine on the couch. It's don't worry about it. You know? And I think it's, again, it's, I think it's her hospital experience. She's probably mm-hmm. had to deal with, you know, hospital patients like hitting on her and trying to get handsy with her and oh, learn yeah. to like laugh it off and jump at, mm-hmm. you know, she's already like professional nurse levels of yeah. people handling when it comes yeah, to impressive. her father and Fred and yeah. And I think they're, they're also giving Al a little more leeway than they ordinarily would. They're like, it's literally his first day back after the war. And we're right. so happy to have him back. He wants to get blotto fine. You know, we can deal with one night of this kind of rabble rousing and we'll take him home and take care of him. And honestly, I'm surprised that Al's able to function in any way whatsoever the next day. <laughs> I know. Holy cow. I was, I lost count watching of it. how many drinks he must've had. It was it like was at least like nine. I don't know. It was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. And he was, like, he was I, going I have for more it. than three and it's disaster. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing I, I, I looked this up. This was the one piece of trivia that I did not know this. This was new to me. And I just found this very mm. interesting. And it was, it was the, so there's the shot right at the beginning where the, the three of them are in the plane and uh, it's Homer lighting the cigarettes. Yeah. Which again, just, I was, I loved seeing uh, his dexterity with those and getting the match mm. and lighting it and all that it was really cool to see, but I didn't, understand at first the superstition line oh the three on a match ring with me yeah the three on a match thing yeah uh and looking that up and the the three on a match being uh from world war one uh Mm. but snipers would would uh see the flame for the first cigarette aim on the second one and pull the trigger on the third and i thought huh that's interesting to me so it was just it was the way he said that like are you guys superstitious and they knew exactly what he was talking about and he's like well i am and throws out <laughs> there's obviously no chance they're going to get snipered in that plane but it was a cool scene and knowing finding out after the fact what the superstition was hmm. was really cool but there again is that kind of time capsule thing right like if i'm watching this right. in 1946 1947 in a movie theater i probably know what three on a match is all about I've, I've, I'm most likely to have, to have known that, but so far removed from it and not just in being born so far removed from it. And then it being another, you know, 40 something years since then, it, uh, it was just cool to learn that. And I learned a new, a new superstition. Today I learned. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah i mean this is just so uh, it's wholesome it, too there's a wholesomeness to this movie <laughs> it is it's wholesome without being corny yeah you know yeah exactly it's it very easily could have been super corny too like it could have been preachy it could have been corny it could have been way over the top but i think why it's still so good 70 plus years later is the fact that it's earnest in its mm -hmm. uh message and it's wholesome and it's like a, it's truly a family film in a lot of ways like it's yeah. it's something Although anybody can a, watch there's a couple moments there's a yeah there's a there's at least one moment that's a little bit um charged where uh wilma comes over to homer's house at night homer's downstairs he's pouring himself some milk wilma mm -hmm. comes over because her family's going to send her away the next day to go stay right. with her aunt and uncle on you know lake what's a, what's a, who's it you know uh at their cabin and to try to forget about him and move mm -hmm. on and let him go because you know homer hasn't been responsive to her anymore and her parents maybe think that they're not going to have such a good life together now that homer is disabled um whereas you know homer's perfectly happy living on his disability check he yeah. thinks it's it's cushy you know it's more money oh, sure. than he might have gotten at several other jobs it's it's more money than fred's making at yeah. least um and uh she comes over and she's tr trying to say you know she's like i have been trying to tell you my feelings that I have, they have not changed. I loved you when you left and I love you now and I want to be with you and I want you to understand that. And he's like, I, all right. And he's finally ready. And he's like, I want you to understand, you know, what you're getting into basically. He says, I want you to come upstairs with me. I'm going to get ready for bed and I want you to see what happens. And it's just, you know, and part of me, you know, modern, moviegoers is like oh gonna go upstairs and see what happens are we you know but it's it's not that at all you know mm -hmm. <laughs> they go yeah. upstairs and he shows her you know and and he's already learned some things since he came home he's like he yeah before he needed his dad's help to take his shirt off and to take off the harness that holds the prosthetics on and now he can do that part himself you know so he wiggles out of the harness, puts the hooks down on the bed, and he's like, and now, you know, I can get my pajama top on, but I can't button it. And so Peggy says, I'll do that for you. And she lovingly buttons his pajama top and, you know, very tenderly turns the collar back down once it's on him. And I wrote this down and he says, you know, this is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. Can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. As dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. And his voice breaks at the end, yeah. you know, and he's just finally sharing this frustration with her and she says you know she's 
he says, you know, maybe you should go. Maybe you should, maybe you should go like your family wants. And she says, I, she loves him. She's never leaving him. And he says he loves her too. He always has, and he always will. And this time when she hugs him, he hugs her back. And she looks so happy. And, you know, Wilma tucks him in and kisses him goodnight, and turns up the light and goes out and very carefully leaves the door open a yep. little bit as she goes. And you see Homer looking up at the ceiling, smiling, and a tear coming out of his eye. He's just like, oh, it's it's okay. It's going to be okay. This is for real. You know, yeah. she's really willing to stand by me through all of this. And it's a it's a beautiful moment. I think it's the best acting that um, Kathy O'Donnell plays Wilma, that Kathy O'Donnell does in the movie. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, outside of the wedding, the wedding itself, too, yeah, is very beautiful. You know, and the, yeah, whole, the whole time, this is something that you didn't see in the 40s on film. You did not see disability portrayed this. No. So in such a real way and during the wedding ceremony you know they treat homer's hooks as hands yep. you know take homer's right hand and repeat after me and she holds his right hook in her hand and it's like because these are his hands now you know yeah. the, these are homer's hands and she's accepted that and there's a little tension in the crowd when it's time to him for him to put the ring on her finger because they're you can see everybody's a little concerned that this isn't right. going to go well. <laughs> um, but, you know, he pulls it off smoothly. Homer puts the ring on her finger and they get married and it's beautiful and they're starting their life together. And it's just, you know, this was just such a, a milestone and I wish it had been more of a start of a continuous trend unfortunately it was still an outlier yeah. you know this was one of i think three films up to this point where an actor with a disability played a disabled character you know there's um there's this movie i looked it up in 1920 something called the flying ace uh that was an all-black cast and it featured a man with an amputated leg in a supporting role. And it was really, a man, you know, this man had really had his leg amputated in World War I. Um, and then there was Todd Browning's movie, Freaks, with, oh, yeah. from 1932, that was a cast of people who really worked in a circus sideshow and they were genuine, you know, had various disabilities. But, you know, that movie was very poorly received at the time. It didn't do very well critically. It didn't do well commercially. It nearly ended Todd Browning's career um, because people didn't know how to handle it. Um, and so this was one of the very early depictions of somebody with a very visible disability on screen. You know, Lionel Barrymore had been in some movies, he had arthritis to such a a severe degree that, you know, there were some roles in the late 30s where he was using crutches and then It's a Wonderful Life. He's in a wheelchair the entire time. Um, and that was necessary. He was genuine, yeah. genuinely disabled by the pain of his arthritis. 
um, to the point where he couldn't really walk anymore, or at least couldn't afford to expend that much energy and still be able to act, you know? Um, so it was just such a, it, it was a, it was a landmark, uh, in cinnamon. I just wish it had been more continuous progress from then. It's like only now, I would say only in maybe the last five years really has the, the majority, I think, opinion in Hollywood turned to where roles of disabled characters should be played by disabled actors mm -hmm. that, you know, we should no longer have people who are usually able-bodied, you know, people who are, are typically uh, abled playing the role of somebody who is blind or deaf or in a wheelchair or what have you, you know, it's finally, I think the majority opinions finally turning to that point, but it's not, it's almost 80 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Off this film. Yeah. And it's that's uh, wild. And it, they hired, Har they hired Harold Russell, even though, you know, you can't say there's not enough disabled actors. He wasn't an actor. No. When they hired him, although he proved himself extremely capable of acting this role, even though he was not a professional actor to start with. And, so, and I'm not sure if he didn't act because he didn't have another credit on screen for nearly 40 years. He did this movie and his next yeah. movie was 1980. Um, he was running uh, AMVETS, which is a, a veterans association. Okay. Um in America, that's how he spent most of his time. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I feel like I ought to make a, a pilgrimage now. He's Harold Russell is buried in Lakeside Cemetery in Wayland, Massachusetts. Um, oh. I live in Salem, Massachusetts, which is not that far. And I feel like maybe I should maybe I should take a drive, you know, um, yeah. and and go give my thanks to Harold for such a beautiful performance here but it's it's also just kind of fun listening to his that accent pop out from <laughs> yeah. time to time i caught it a few times like yep there's a little uh a little of that massachusetts going on there yeah i can get that out of the car don't worry you know it's just like <laughs> yep yeah so yeah he grew up in uh, cambridge so okay yeah just like well, Boone City, eh? <laughs> it was supposed to stand in for, like, they modeled it on Cincinnati, I think. Yeah. Because um, it was, at first I was trying so to figure out, I'm like, how small is this supposed to be? But it's not like small town, small town, but it's not New York either. Um, right. Small, saw small city, small town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Big enough to have a baseball team. Uh, so, you know. Mm -hmm. But no, th this was this was a fantastic movie, and and it is available right now. It's streaming for free on YouTube. It's also streaming on Amazon Prime, which is where I watched it. Um, and it's mm -hmm. one. It is long. I will say that. But again, the yeah. pacing of it doesn't make it feel like it's a long movie. It's paced really well. It bounces right. between our three kind of protagonist characters and their families and their stories as they intertwine and, and move around really, really well. So it's definitely, I think it's worth a watch, especially if you're at all interested in classic cinema. Um, in any way, this is one to watch. 
Uh, the music in it is fantastic too. Right. I love the score. I loved all the music playing through here. Um, especially that last scene in the aerial graveyard type of stuff where Fred's going in there, that music mm. was so haunting in there as he's kind of hitting his bottom. Um, right. And just the way that, 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 that evoked so much emotion and then for it to turn and kind of get uplifting by the end of it is sort of, he's getting a new job and he's getting to try something new and mm. someone's taking a chance on him, which is really all he's wanted throughout the whole yeah. thing. So exactly yeah, I, exactly I he just that. wants to do something different from yeah. what he'd been doing mm -hmm. and i mean that's so so well done too i did i we hadn't mentioned that when they come in for a landing the first time and see all the planes out on the airfield and the, all these military planes and they're all destined to be junked even though some of them are still almost shiny from the factory because they didn't know when the war was going to end Right. You know, they couldn't have called that. So they were still preparing for needing new planes at the time. And then at the end, we discover that, yes, they're being scrapped, but they're reclaiming the materials to make prefabricated houses. So, yeah. you know, people starting new lives, um, getting a house, you know, as a result of these weapons of war being converted, yep. which is and fantastic. Uh, it did win the Oscar for best original score. Also, it yeah. won seven Oscars. Uh, it was best actor, best supporting actor, best adapted screenplay, best editing, best original score, best director, and best picture. And then the special award for Harold Russell. So it won eight Oscars, really. So Harold yeah. Russell's the only person to win two two awards for the same performance. Which is, um, I, I love that. And it's it's earned. He, yeah. His performance Absolutely. in this is just everybody is top notch, but there there's something with Harold Russell just just a step above. Uh, there's mm -hmm. that there's an authenticity to him. Um, yeah, that I really really dug. Um, so it was great. This the, I I can't recommend this movie enough. Every one of these old classic Hollywoods that I have watched ha has had the same effect. Where I'm just like, you need to watch this. Whether it was right. 12 Angry Men, 12, 12 Angry Men, I still think about on almost a daily basis after having <laughs> watched that for the first time. Just like stuff that happened yeah. in there. It's so good. And this is one I'll think about quite a bit. And I'll probably rewatch this at some point um, just for fun because there's something about a movie that gives you this kind of emotional ride with the hope that it has in it and the earnestness of the story being told that just really really does something for me so this is a great great choice thank you thank you for choosing oh, to watch this movie the the list you had I'm was glad a lot it of really good so ones. well i am too <laughs> i really really am um so all right so you you are a part-time co-host of the movie duel podcast yes um yeah so let people know what that show is where they can find it <laughs> movie duel is a show uh the main host is peter marshall um and the premise of the show is that one person chooses a subject uh each of the two co-hosts choose a film uh, that fits that subject and then they discuss those movies and decide which is the winner and if they can't decide between the two of them then it goes uh to an audience poll um to determine which which is the better film so 
Uh, some of the episodes I've been on was Best Liminal Space Horror. That was okay. my pick. And then there was Worst Video Game Movie. <laughs> uh, worst Science Fiction Movie of the 2010s. Mm. Um, the answer is Geostorm. And... <laughs> Uh, you know, very various other things. There were one where um, it's like movies that we thought were going to be terrible, but we actually really enjoyed. Where the two films were The Warriors and Chud, and <laughs> I picked Chud. That had been one that I hadn't seen, and I finally watched it. I'm like, this is so much fun. I am having yeah. a grand time watching this film, even though oh, it's yeah. you know this cheap horror movie from the '80s. Um, there, there is something. So, yeah, to be we said had a good time those. on the movie duel. Yeah, that sounds so, like fun. I, I agree with got, you on Geostorm. Yeah. by the way, Geostorm is. Uh, <laughs> Peter argued it was Independence Day Resurgence, which I will grant is also terrible. That one's bad uh, too. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> but. Well, that's cool. Uh, so the movie duel podcast. I, I like that format. I like the idea of. Here's a, a topic, and now let's pit a couple of movies against each other, and you bring your arguments, and you bring yours, and let's let's see if we can come to a consensus. Uh, it's a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was Peter's concept, and it's been working out well so far. He's got a team of four rotating co-hosts, and uh, we all put together a Christmas special, which should be out. If it's not out now, we'll be out within the next couple of days. Uh, featuring all of us, all the co-hosts and Peter. Um, so, you know, you can Excellent. look for that on Spotify or your favorite other podcast listening service. <laughs> Very cool. Well, definitely. I mean, if you like movies discussions and if you're listening to this show, I'm going to guess that you do check out the movie dual podcast. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, speaking of this show, I do record uh, Sunday nights live. I stream it on Twitch. So if you want to come see the show live, you can do that. Um, and uh, it's twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Uh, the show is a podcast, comes out on Wednesdays, anywhere you get your podcasts, every week for 247 weeks in a row now or something like that. I think I've, I've skipped once. I've skipped one week um, because I have a problem. I'm like a podcasting shark. If I stop recording <laughs> at some point, I'll just evaporate. So I keep going. But um, it's also a video version of the show and, and, and an audio podcast on YouTube as well. Um, so you can check it out there, any of the podcasting uh, locations, or go to my site, tvstravis.com, which does have links there for this show, other shows that I do, as well as uh, the Patreon for this, patreon.com slash WYHS, which you can do for uh, as little as $1 per episode. And there is exclusive content that comes up. You get shows a few days early there, all that kind of stuff. So if you feel like joining that, uh, please do. Um, if not, just listen to the show. I appreciate everybody that listens to the show. I do this because it's just a lot of fun. Um, but Nicole, thank you so much for being here this week. This is great. We're going to do this again. I'll, I'll have you back anytime. Thank you for having me. I love talking about movies, so I will grab any chance I can get. Excellent. Um, now, next week, I'm uh, moving forward a couple of decades, but we're still staying in uh, somewhat of classic territory. Uh, next week, my friend Josh is coming back. Uh, hasn't, he hasn't been on for a little bit. Last time he was on, we talked about Annihilation, which was a movie that like short-circuited my brain uh, with, with, with just, oh, it was so good. Um, we're going to go back to 1975 
and we're going to talk about three days of the condor because he brought that up and i'm like you know what i haven't seen that either like i know of it and i've seen things that it's inspired but neither one of us had actually watched it so we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about that next week um which i think is going to be a lot of fun because i love spy thrillers anyway so this is like on the mount rushmore of spy thrillers is three days of the condor so True. definitely come back and check that out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. And um, we'll definitely get you in some kind of a regular rotation. We'll get you back on at some point because um, this was a lot of fun. And you came highly recommended as a guest. And uh, I will definitely be making sure that I double whatever Corey, whatever I pay Corey uh, for bringing <laughs> the guests. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I would love to come back. This Excellent. has been great fun. Thank you so much. And uh, just remember next week, three days of the condor. Until then, everybody enjoy your movies and let's be excellent to each other. This has been Wait, You Haven't Seen. understand it. Why? Why you're not mad about me. I think I'm attractive. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>